You've entered Bookstorm with Kristen Civiletto and me, Chris Storm. This is a podcast devoted to best-selling books that matter, books that make a difference. We're diving down deep with beloved authors about their stories. We're exposing hot-button topics and heartfelt themes, the issues that affect each of us in our own lives as siblings, parents, partners, friends, as human beings. We're braving new ideas, fresh thoughts, hard lessons and important truths. Those kinds of things that stay with us long after we turn the last page and close the book. Welcome back, Bookstorm listeners. We have a an author with us today in a beloved book that Kristen and I have fully embraced. It is a treasure. It is a classic. And we are honored to have Dolan Perkins Valdez with us today. Let me tell you a little bit about her before we get started. She is the New York Times bestselling author of Wench, Balm, and now this most recent book that we love called Take My Hand. In 2011, Dolan was finalist for two NAACP Image Awards and the Hurston Wright Legacy Award for Fiction. In 2017, HarperCollins released Wench as one of eight Olive Titles limited edition modern classics. Wow. Dolan received a DC commission on the arts grant for her second novel, Bomb. In 2013, she wrote the introduction to a special edition of Solomon Northrup's 12 Years a Slave, uh, which was a New York Times bestseller. She followed that up with writing an introduction to Elizabeth Keckley's Behind the Scenes. Dolan is a 2020 nominee for the United States Artists Fellowship, so well-deserved. She is the current chair of the board of the Penn Faulkner Foundation. And on behalf of this foundation, and I loved reading this, she has visited nearly every public high school in D.C. to talk about the importance of reading and writing. She's currently associate professor in literature department at American University. She lives in D.C. with her family and Dolan. It is truly an honor for us to have you with us today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Dylan, we like to give our listeners just a little bit of a summary of the book. And I'm going to go ahead and offer some of my thoughts. And if you want to jump in at the end and tell us a little bit more factually that you think is important for our discussion, by all means. And I won't give away any spoilers, just to assure you. Um, first of all, the setting for Take My Hand, which is an important and fantastic novel, as Chris has already said, uh, is Montgomery, Alabama in 1973, as well as kind of a dual story in 2016. Sybil Townsend, your protagonist, is the daughter of a prominent doctor. And she has just graduated from nursing school. And she's ready to make a difference, especially in her black community, by working at the Montgomery Family Planning Clinic. Now, when her first week on the job takes her out into rural Alabama, she is pretty shocked to be dealing with clients, patients, who are very young. In fact, they're 11 and 13 years old. They are very poverty-stricken. They are two young black sisters. And she is there to give them a shot for birth control. Um, she starts to grapple 
with some of her responsibilities and some of the information that she starts to unearth. And one day she discovers something unthinkable that has happened that affects the girls. And it really reshapes the course of Sybil's life as well as numerous other people in the novel. And uh, do you want to add anything to that? Because we're dealing with these beautiful themes of, you know, sisterhood and standing up and taking a stand even when there's medical ethics and tricky things involved. But what else factually would you add? Well, I would just say that Civil uh, really goes into this wanting to do something good for her community. And um, I think she's young when the book starts. She's only 22, 23 years old. But I think she's a lot like all of us who want to try to make a difference and who find themselves walking a very fine line between helping someone and hurting someone. So that's what I would say about her. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Dolan, Chris, if you're ready to brave the storm, we can get started. We sure are. So I want to start by saying thank you. Thank you for not just telling us about these horrific atrocities that went on in our American history, but for making us feel them. That is the true gift of an author. So we felt anger. I was repulsed at big corrupt, corrupt government taking uh, advantage of needy, poverty-stricken people and black young women. In your story, and this is not giving too much away, the government offers food stamps and welfare checks. But then they have the idea that they have the right to determine the course of these poverty-stricken people's lives. In fact, to the extent that they determine those people do not deserve to be able to have children. This was shocking for the reader. In uh, the back of your book, you offered some additional important facts, and I have to state these. Okay, you mentioned between 2006 and 2010, 150 women in the state of California in the state prison were sterilized without their permission. Permanent birth control was part of a plea deal in Nashville, Tennessee. Immigrants were forcibly detained by the ICA and sterilized without consent at U.S. detainment facilities. Here's what I felt when I closed this book. I felt like you as the author may be trying to say to us, don't you dare close this book and pretend like it'll never happen again. And don't pretend like it might not even be happening today. And don't think no matter what your race, religion, heritage, culture is, that it can't happen to you. And I was going to ask you, what did we, this is a really a tough question I'm posing to you, where did we go wrong as a society to allow the oppression of young black girls and women in our country in this way? And what can we do to prevent it and stop it? Well, uh, thank you for framing that so uh, beautifully. You know, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think that I did want the reader to close this book, but not leave this story behind. I really wanted them to carry this story with them. And that sort of set up in the structure of the book in uh, Civil, Dr. Civil Townsend, the present Civil, telling the story to her daughter, who is sort of like a stand in for the reader. Sybil's daughter is Anne is not really a character. She's sort of a shadow who represents, you know, me sharing this story with the reader. And so I think it's really important for us 
to just first know about what happened in this country. Um, and of course, it didn't just happen to Black women. It also happened to poor white women. Um, it also has happened to women who lived on reservations, um, incarcerated women, disabled women, women who were in who have been institutionalized, were forcibly sterilized. And um, so I think the very first step for us to just is know this and to know um, that, you know, even those of us who think we may be immune to this, it could still happen to um, one of our loved ones. Or um, I know many of us have disabled people in our families. Um, and many of us um, love people who are the most vulnerable members of our society. So I just wanted people to know about this. Um, and then they can decide the path they want to take. Um, uh, I have a list uh, in, in my book club kit for people that choose a book, their book club of lots of reproductive justice organizations around the country. There are lots of organizations other than, you know, Planned Parenthood or National Organization of Women. There are a lot of grassroots organizations that are working to make sure that women's reproductive rights are protected. And, and of course, when I talk about reproductive rights, I'm talking about a broad spectrum of rights. I'm talking about uh, the right to contraception. I'm talking about the right to maternal fetal health care. I'm talking about after the baby is born, the right to raise a child in a safe and healthy environment. Um, I'm talking about uh, the right to, um, to privacy concerning uh, some of your contraceptive choices. So there are a lot of things that are encompassed in that term, reproductive justice, but everyone has to find their way in for the issues that they care most about. And, um, and I think there's just a lot of work to be done. I don't have any answers, but I'm just hoping that the book will alert us that this is an ongoing battle and that we need to join forces um, and work on it together. Absolutely. And, you know, it just struck me so shocking that these sorts of things can be occurring and that we're not aware of them. And I'm and you said to me before we started the show today that even one person can be a voice. And it doesn't matter where we live or, you know, what our neighborhood is or what what uh, what our what our job is. We still can be a voice even in our own community in some way. And I, I felt like that's what your book said a lot to the reader because it made us not only care, but it made us realize these things that are affected to uh, underprivileged people in our nation, it affects us too. It affects all of us in a, in a certain way. So thank you for that. It's the most beautiful story. So important. Thank you. Yeah, I'd like to press in on uh, one of those issues because your, your novel raises a number of very important issues. Um, but one of them deals with the idea of the abortion rate for black women being incredibly high. In fact, it's five times that of white women. It's several times that of uh, Hispanic women. And in parts of New York City, according to New York health statistics, there our black babies are more likely to be aborted than they are to be born. And this is a pretty astounding statistic. Um, in fact, the new figures for 2019 have just been released, and they're even more jaw-dropping. Um, the people who speak up about these issues, you know, in including yourself, because there's few of them who do, 
uh, sometimes attribute these to racism, to fewer reproductive choices, to the mass incarceration of black men, to the siting of family planning centers. And uh, my concern and, and my question to you is, why is it so difficult to press into this issue and talk about it rationally? Because a lot of the discussion has been filtered through a pro-life or a pro-choice um, lens. And I think what's getting lost in there are some truly alarming numbers that no matter where you stand on the abortion issue, we need to be concerned about these statistics. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if you could maybe expand upon that a little bit, if you have some thoughts on that, because that was clearly a theme you were working through. Yes, I think, you know, uh, other statistics also are really, really um, discouraging for black women, for lack of a better word. One is the infant mortality rate is something like four times higher for black women than white women. Also, black women are less likely to have prenatal care. And some of these statistics persist across class lines so that black educated women also have higher infant mortality rates and higher maternal mortality rates, which is also just really quite disturbing. So, you know, to me, this boils down to a public health issue. And I think, you know, we have to continue to examine the intersection of race and public health. Um, there are some wonderful uh, journalists who are working on this right now. Um, the journalist Linda Villarosa has a new book that just came out called Under the Skin. Um, I drew a lot on Dorothy Roberts' Killing the Black Body, which was published almost 30 years ago now, um, which talks a which is a sort of historical accounting of the connection between race and reproduction. And there's a book called uh, Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington, another scholar. So I think um, it's a it's a public health issue. And um, and to sort of focus in only on termination of pregnancy um, does not really view it from that broader public health perspective. And I think if we uh, more aggressively as a country address our public health crisis for Black women, and that includes, you know, things like fibroids, which is also uh, disproportionately affects Black women, until we more aggressively address Black women's public health, um, we're not going to be able to talk about, you know, some of those more specific statistics. Yeah, I think that it's a discussion that is fraught with a lot of difficulty because it's been politicized. And as you've pointed out, you know, we are talking at its core about a health issue, a public health issue. Mm -hmm. And I think that the difficulty is that because it is so politicized, we can't deal with some of these very real numbers and pressing into those without being labeled as this side or this side. And you know, sometimes my fear in, for example, returning some of these issues to the states makes them even more political. I don't know, it's just a, a thought I have. But I really um, agree with you that you know, taking a big picture approach mm -hmm. and looking at this as a public health issue first and foremost is really important because as we drill down into the specifics, we see that there is cause for alarm across the board. And there really is driving that. And, and while I've been on book tour, it's been very interesting to hear from readers who are sharing personal accounts of these nightmare stories with their doctors, right? We also have to, you know, one of my hopes is that books like mine will be 
required reading in medical schools and in nursing schools, because um, part of that healthcare crisis has to do with doctors not hearing and seeing their patients of color. Um, and so many women are sharing these stories with me of um, their doctors not listening to them. And I think most famously, most recently, famously, we heard the story of Serena Williams, who talked about her doctor not hearing her. Um, and, and she almost died as a result of that. And so a lot of people have been saying, you know, if the doctor won't listen to Serena Williams, a celebrity and a millionaire, what kind of chance does the rest of us have? So I think it's also going to be really important for our practicing healthcare professionals to understand this crisis. And there are some things without us even going into um, some of the policy debates, there are some things that just our healthcare practitioners can do. You know, they can slow down, they can um, become more educated in culturally competent care. Um, they can recognize some of the things that disproportionately affect black women. So when a pregnant black woman comes in the office, they pay a little bit more attention, right? You just had someone walk into your office who is a walking statistic. Yeah. So, you know, slow down and listen. And so I think there are some things that we can do just, you know, on the ground level before we even get into policy. But the policy, of course, is the ultimate, um, the ultimate goal. Excellent. Well said. Very well said. And yes, the health crisis that we're in <clears throat> and this book is, I would consider this book to be a classic. And I would hope everybody would pick this up and read it. Not, it is a book that will draw you in so deep, but it's so meaningful. You're, you're going to finish this book and be a different person when you're done reading it, or at least have some knowledge of things that you were unaware of. And we thank you for that. But I want to talk to you about this wonderful character that you created, Mace. He's the father of Erica in India. We come to know these two little girls within their harsh poverty. Before we even meet their father, we, it's easy for us to render and form some assumptions of this man because we see these girls disheveled, hungry, their clothing is dirty, and right away we, we assume, oh, their father must be lazy. Oh, maybe he's ignorant. Uh, maybe he's abusive. I bet he's unkind. But enter Mace Williams on the scene. Yeah, he's unkempt because he's poverty-stricken. He's downtrodden, but we can't help but like him. In fact, Civil, the protagonist, is very fond of him. I don't want to give anything more away than that. And we're right along with her because he loves his family. He wishes he could do more, but he can't. He's stuck in a rut of welfare hole that he doesn't even know how to crawl out of. And Civil comes to help him. But what struck me so strong with this is you helped us to understand people who come into desperate situations and great need are there because of so very many reasons. And it could be any one of us. And it sort of draw our attention and caution to say, be careful how you categorize people. Like you're talking about the people that walk into the doctor's office. You know, don't, don't quickly say, here's just another pregnant woman. I'm going to treat her like all I treat all the other pregnant women. Or here's somebody on welfare. I'm just going to give them whatever they need and disregard who they really are. Um, wasn't this, don't you think that this is the cause of why the government felt they had the power to mistreat these young black women because they assumed them ignorant 
or incapable or uh, uneducated. It, it's shocking to me the, uh, the preconceived notions that people place on people of need. Yes, you know, uh, there's a line in the book where Sybil, who comes from uh, a more privileged background, says about her family, we managed to live dignified in undignified times. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the thing about the Williams family is that they're living in undignified times, but they're not managing to live dignified, right? Because they are so impoverished and um, Mace is finding himself at the nexus of the changing economy in the South, for example. And, um, you know, his skill set is no longer valued. So, um, you know, one of the things that I was trying to show with the family is that they have really struggled in recent years since his wife died. And they are really, you know, trying to do the best that they can but, you know, their best isn't good enough. Right. So um, there's this one scene where Mace's mother, the girl's grandmother, um, talks to Sybil and says, I bet when you first came in that house, you judged me for living like that. Um, and she sort of articulates to Sybil what happened and why they got to that point. And and so and Sybil actually, you know, learns that um uh, that uh, Mrs. Williams' mother uh, could read, but Mrs. Williams can't. So uh, there's um, a lot, I think, that the novel has to say about the struggle of poor people in the South. The other thing that was really important for me to um, suggest in the book is that they're so dependent on these welfare benefits that it really makes civil and the nurses a powerful authority in their lives. And for that reason, Mace resents them. Um, he both resents her and also is grateful. So it creates this very complicated dynamic between them. And she's still understanding her power. Like she thinks that she's just helping them, but she is not really acknowledging just how much power she has over their lives. And in their minds, all of the government agencies are connected. So if they make civil mad, then maybe their ben other benefits will be cut off. And so, uh, she, you know, she's walking this line at the beginning of the book and doesn't even realize it. Um, but I really love Mace as a character because he just feels so real to me. He felt um, like someone who, um, as, as a man of his time, right, he thinks that it's his duty to to provide for his family and to protect his family. And when he's unable to do that, it really sort of destroys him. And, uh, you know, and he's trying, he's struggling with that and trying to deal with that. And that's something that Sybil is sort of, um, you know, naive about, about just the, about his feeling of sort of lost manhood. And she has to learn over the course of the book um, that these people are their own people and they have their own hopes and dreams. And sometimes those hopes and dreams don't coincide with what she thinks they should be. But what I tried to do was to, you know, when we talk about these assumptions that people have about poor people, what I tried to do is to bring the reader into that, to say, 
you know, you might have thought the same thing. You might have, if you had been in that situation that Sybil was in, you might have done exactly the same thing she did. You might have said to yourself, you know, uh, that younger sister um, who is disabled in the book, uh, India, doesn't, shouldn't have a baby. She can't care for a baby. You know, you might have even thought when you walked into that shack, yes, this would be a bad idea for a baby to be in this situation. So I wanted to kind of pull the reader into those assumptions so that the reader could then self-examine their own their own ideas about poverty and about humanity and about the humanity of people. You absolutely did do that. And I wanted to bring this up to what you just said about, okay, let's talk about the title of the book, Take My Hand. And Kristen and I were talking about this, you just brought it up now, that take my hand, let me help you. But there may come a point where someone may say, I don't want your help anymore. And I don't want that kind of help anymore. And your idea of happiness is not my idea of happiness. And that's the, that's what Sybil was struggling with there for a little bit in the book. And we as the reader could feel it. It's a little shocking. You know, we come across the situation. I, I'm in the junior league uh, here, and we raise about a quarter of a million dollars that we give to a nonprofit. And so many times we go into a situation and we think, okay, here's what you need and how you should use it. And then they explain to us, that's not going to help us at all. You don't understand where we're coming from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you may think that we need a new kitchen, shiny new appliances, but we don't. We just need clean water. Mm -hmm. Or it's just so different. So it is. thank you for showing that. Thank you. My husband tells this story. He saw a panhandler. We all uh, have, you know, given money to panhandlers at some point. And he said that there was a panhandler outside of McDonald's. And somebody came out of the McDonald's and they handed him a sack with food in it. And, uh, and the man said, thank you. And then the man went inside and asked for a refund for the food. And, uh, and I said to my husband, well, what was your take on that? And he said, people want to have a say in their good deeds. He didn't ask for a sandwich. He asked for money, (laughs) you know, and I never forgot that little story because, um, you know, and sometimes you do see panhandlers asking for food, but on this particular day, he was asking for money. And I feel like, just listening to what people actually need and want is is a big um, responsibility of ours when we are trying to do good for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I want to kind of pick right up on that theme because that, that was another theme running through your novel, and that is this idea of being a savior. And sometimes when we mean well, there's harm that can flow from what we're doing. And you really showed that well, you know, as an attorney, I was looking at the impacts of litigation on the family. And there there are tremendous impacts that are negative associated with filing a lawsuit. You know, there's the delay, there's the emotional, um, you know, pain, frankly, uh, the financial burden, the notoriety that comes along with a suit like that. And even when you get to trial, people don't even feel vindicated at the end of the day because they have been through so much. And I really loved that Sybil was grieved by some of these negative aspects of her intervening and that she would constantly check her motives. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Sybil's motives here, because sometimes we act selfishly, sometimes we also have altruistic motives, sometimes both, and that's a hard thing to sort out. It is. She, you know, at the beginning of the book, she wants to do right. She has very 
uh, I think pure motives. And I think, you know, she wants to change the world, you know, and she wants to start with her community. She wants to be a healthcare worker. Um, and very quickly, she learns that it's a lot more complicated than that. And even, you know, you mentioned the trial. Um, I think she's at that point, she's coming from behind because this damage has been done and now she's trying to fix it. And, you know, can we ever fix it really is what the book is asking, you know? And so that's why it's incumbent upon us not to let this happen in the first place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very well said. Mm -hmm. That's, um, I wrote something else down. I feel it's timely to bring this up right now. So Sister Latarsha from the School for Special Needs, at one point um, she says to Civil, um, there was a situation in the book where needy, broken, manipulated people didn't want Civil's help anymore, and they said, get on with your own life now. And then there was another quote where she said, uh, sometimes love can kill you just like that. You love too hard, and you can lose yourself in other folks' sorrow. And I think that goes along with what you're saying. We forget what our original goal is, and we begin to be so focused on winning that we forget, are we really helping these people anymore? Are we just wanting to win now? Mm-hmm. And Kristen and I were talking about this a little with her legal work. In the settlement of a case, you want justice, you want punitive damages, but sometimes the client just wants money. They need money to get on with their lives. They want a settlement. So she, you or you may want to expound on that, that you even have to separate yourself from this at times. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I always think in terms of what are my motives for, you know, I mean, we're turning these people's lives upside down. You know, property values are impacted. But I have to always keep going back to the why. And, and I think that's what Civil kept doing here, right? She kept going back to what is the bigger picture? Why am I doing this? I don't know. Is that kind of going through your mind? Yes, I think self-examination is critical to altruism, right? I think uh, we have to rigorously uh, question ourselves as we try to help. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to help. I mean, we should all be helping in some way. There's no question. And and I love in the book that Civil, you know, finds them a place and you know, helps them get furniture and, you know, Mrs. Williams finally gets a kitchen and, you know, the girls get a bedroom. I mean, I love that she does that, but she loses sight of exactly what you're saying. She loses sight of her motivations and she becomes too personally invested, you know, and they're not her family, you know, they're, they're, they're their own family. And, um, and so I just think that's really important. I have, I just recently met a a therapist who special, a psychologist who specializes in trauma, patients with trauma. And I said to her, how do you do that? How do you listen to trauma all day and not, you know, have it affect you? And she said, I believe every good therapist should always stay close to their own therapist. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I think that's what we, the way we should be thinking about it. Like we, we can help people, but we always need to be thinking about like what we're getting out of it and why we're doing this and you know what's our end goal and and if 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 we're clear about that if we're really clear-eyed I think we're in the best possible position to help people absolutely excellent such a beautiful story thank you so much can you give us any clues about what's on your radar what are you working on now 
Well, I have a lot of little small projects that are due right now, just like essays and things like that. So I have, I have another book that I'm supposed to be working on, but right now it's just uh, essays for here and there. Well, that's wonderful. Well, honestly, Dolan, if you never write, if one more thing, you have done something incredibly good with the writing of this novel, and yeah. it is just an absolute treasure, and we can't thank you enough. I want to tell our listeners, you're going to want to connect with Dolan Perkins Valdez. You can find her on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can also sign up for her newsletter if you want to see what she's up to. Dolan it's been a pleasure meeting you. It's Thank you so pleasure. much. Thank you for these great questions. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Keep writing. Thanks. Just love talking to Dolan. And I know you in your law uh, practice, this is real. This book has really hit you strong, hasn't it, Kristen? Oh, absolutely. My goodness. So many of the themes that she raises and checking our motives, understanding why we're intervening, but also the theme of taking action. Because there's a lot of times where you think to yourself, well, does one person make a difference? You know, and, and I have actually had people say things to me, even people in my family, you can't take on City Hall. Well, does that mean we don't try? Right? Because I do believe people can make a difference, even one person. Um, for example, in the story, you know, civil was up against a tremendous weight of history. This is Montgomery, Alabama in 1973. So we're dealing with situations that are almost overwhelming to contemplate, yet she stepped into it. And we've said this before, one person does make a difference, in, even in our communities, wherever we are. And as Dolan said, in her book club kit, we can all find other ways that we could contribute. But I'm always a big believer, the courage of one person to question supposed authority, however big it might seem, is the answer. And it, it encourages other people with more timid voices to rise up right, right alongside and fight for some kind of good. And I, I love that. I also wanted to talk about this. There was one other fact that she had in the book. Uh, she said in 1927, the US Supreme Court ruled that compulsory sterilization for people deemed unfit was constitutional. People in asylums all over the country were sterilized. And, and now since then, we did some research on this, and thank goodness this has been overturned. But what a, this just blew my mind to think that anyone could look at any other person and decide on their behalf if they are fit or unfit for anything, for marriage, for childbearing, to be able to perform a certain task, to be able to get a higher education, to be able to own a home, to be able to travel. This could lead, when does it ever stop when we start allowing things like this? It was shocking to me. Yeah, I mean, this falls into that realm of rights that we regard as fundamental, and that's what our Constitution is designed to protect, is unreasonable government interference into those. And these are the most important issues of our day. We are still ironing out what we regard as a fundamental right. In fact, we're waiting on a Supreme Court decision right now where some of those issues are being addressed. Um, it, that was one of the things I really enjoyed about this book, and that is the story was told in a way that allowed you to really press in and think about things and start that national discussion. And... I don't think enough people are talking about some of these issues 
like the disparity in maternal outcomes, in birth survival rates, in the abortion rate for young black women or black women in general. If we can't talk about these without the political element taking over, then I'm very concerned for our society going forward. I absolutely agree. And the other thing that terrified me through this is the the poor people who who are when you enter such a desperate situation that you're talking about I need food, water, shelter. I need basic survival. And big government comes along, welfare system that does so much good. So I'm not going there. But they say, "Yes, you can have all those, but in order to have those, you have to do A, B, C, D. And like Dolan said, you, the people feel like they're walking on eggshells because they just need to survive. And that power that any big government or uh, any organization society would hold over someone, that in order to do good, you have to follow all the rest of my rules, is very terrifying to me. And I guess what this book did for me was just call my attention to things that go on behind the scenes that we're unaware of in a shocking way. And maybe our role is to call attention to these things. Maybe we don't know about a big government issue, but maybe we know about someone who is not being treated fairly by some uh, system, in some court system or some uh, welfare system that we can be a voice and support and help in some way, which I know as a lawyer you do every day. But for the rest of us regular citizens, there still is something we can do. It shocked me just to learn that all this was going on. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's always what's on my radar is how do we call attention to some of these inequities, these ethical uh, gray areas? And um, Dolan deals with that a lot, these medical ethics, for example. And for me, one of the best ways to do that is writing and calling attention through story, which is what she's doing. So for me, that's always what's on my radar. Mm-hmm. How, how about you? What's, what is that's That's it. That's just what I pretty much said what was on my radar there is just to keep an eye out for things that go unseen, people that go unheard who don't have a voice, and maybe scoop them up and befriend them or uh, help them, assist them, give them food, like she said, or even money, or people give people what they need, not what we think they need. Yeah, and shine I just, a light. I loved that so much. Yeah. Well, uh, we just want to say thank you for following us on Bookstorm Podcast. I haven't checked our numbers, but last I saw, we are 17 countries, 175 cities, and almost 50 states, including Hawaii. And that is because of, and thanks to, our incredibly talented sound engineer and producer, the Mr. Mark Carey. Mark, thank you so much. Say hi to our listeners. Hi, everyone. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Have a good one. We sure did, thanks to him. And I want to leave you with a few storm predictions to pique your interest. We have an absolutely amazing lineup summer ahead. Some of these books are not out yet. We received the ARC, Advanced Readers Copy, copy quite frequently, which we're thrilled about. But we have Ellen Marie Wiseman and her story, The Lost Girls of Willowbrook. We have Charmaine Wilkerson and Black Cake. We have Two Nights in Lisbon with Chris Pavoni and The Golden Couple with Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekinen. And remember, listeners, one of the best ways to brave the storm is to dive down deep into life-changing fiction. 